1: Done.
0: A playlist original.
2: Just watch me. The medium is the message. Proof is a proof. What kind of a proof? It's approved. It
0: has
1: no core identity. Smash potatoes with no gravy.
0: You know what I'm saying? Speaking uh, moistly on them. Yeah.
2: Hello and welcome to Just Watch Me. I'm Kate. And I'm Liv. Today on the
1: podcast, we have Julie Lumsden. Julie is a singer and actor from Manitoba. All of Canada is her stage though, because she has performed at the Shaw Festival, RMTC and Rainbow Stage. Most recently, Julie performed in Messiah Complex presented by Against the Grain Theatre in partnership with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. The Winnipeg Free Press said that she had a marvelous voice and her picture was even featured in the New York Times. Julie, welcome. Thank you for
2: having me. (laughs) So we're super excited to talk about Messiah Complex, um, but we want to get to know you a little bit first. If you can tell us like your first forays into music, how did you start making music?
3: Yeah, I started, I grew up in Winnipeg, Manitoba on Treaty 1 and I come from a pretty like hobby music-based family. My mom was in this choir that was big in the 70s called up with people where they would travel across the world and sing songs and um that was a big part of her life and my aunt's life um my father you know plays the guitar and sings all the time so we had a lot of music in the home and then my first kind of real foray into professional music would be through my church when i was about three or four years old we had a choir there and my first um my first choir director there just knew that I had to stand in the front row because I was so loud. (laughs) And I don't know if I was good. I don't think I was good. I was just very present. And uh, (laughs) so that's kind of how it got started. I was always a loud kid. And then once I started phonating by singing, it just continued that way. Um, I was in, I was in a lot of like public programs. So the choirs in schools, the choir in my church, Um, in our school division, we have Divisional music or divisional musical theater program. So it was this free, basically free program where all the elementary schools and middle schools you would audition for this program. It would start in September. You would do a show in February. There'd be two casts, and you would rehearse the show at either Monday Wednesdays or Tuesday Thursdays. And it was that was the basis I think of me becoming a performer because you started in grade three, you would audition with a poem and a song. And you'd go in there at the age of eight and try and do this. And if you got a part, you were mailed a little package. And you did that until grade eight. So you started off as like, you know, elf number seven or tree number six and you saw and you saw these grade eight kids who are the leads and you just looked up to them like they were you know they were Britney Spears to you they were these stars and they were old and they just moved in this way that was so exciting and and, you know as an eight-year-old you don't really have a lot of interaction with people that old other than your siblings you start off in this program you're tree number six and then the next year you're maybe you know fish number three and then by grade five maybe you'll get a small little role and it really laid the basis of what it means to audition what it means when you don't get the part you want what it means when you do get the part you want and that kind of onus of responsibility when you are the lead when you're the 13 year old walking in with that swagger because you know you're playing what's some Maisie LaBird and Susicle. And uh, (laughs) so it really instilled in me that kind of work ethic. And again, it was a program that was like, you paid 50 bucks for your costume. And it really laid in, I think what musical theater can be and the the magic within it and the idea that, you know, we're all there for a common cause and the show wouldn't be the show without tree number six. Um, So that was kind of, I think, my first foray. And then after grade eight, I was like, you know what? I think I want to continue on with this. So I started taking voice lessons, um, which it was an amazing, amazing time. I remember going to my voice teacher's studio in Osborne and singing songs. It was a lot of kind of folk songs and the sacred songs and and music. Oh gosh,
1: that that triggers me. That <laughs> triggers me, honestly. <laughs> what are the sacred songs? But that's a great question. It's, it's just like, it's just religious songs, right? That's, that's all it essentially is.
3: Yeah. So, so basically me and Olivia competed in the Winnipeg's music festival, which would happen every year in March. And it was based on your age for vocal singers. And you would come into a church where there would be maybe like 12 people, And they would all be the people that you're competing against sitting in the back two pews. And it would be a freezing church in the middle of March. You'd go there in your little dress and your pantyhose and your tiny little heels, and you would take off your parka and you weren't allowed to warm up in this church because other people were performing. And then you would go up there with your accompanist and you would stand at this little piano and you do the big like (sighs) breath. (laughs) And then you sing this 30 second, 45 second, two minute, sacred song or folk song or aria or whatever it may be and then someone who has flown in adjudicates you and there's medals handed out and people get trophies at the end of it and it's uh it's just kind of it was the craziest place to sing I think like the can I can I ask
1: you a question Yes, cuz I don't remember. I was like an OG. Um I just have to have a minute for the Winnipeg Music Festival because it's a, to- it's a time of my life I'd never get to talk about. So, um I was like an OG er I started in the under 8 category. And that was the other weird thing. It was always under. You were always the age under. Anyway, and so I started at the Planetarium. Did you ever sing at the Planetarium? Yeah. Yes. And this was, I I don't know if they still have it, but there was like a test piece category. And so it was like, you could only choose between two songs. And there was, I mean, especially in the younger categories, there was like, what, like 20 people in your class sometimes. And they would all get up and sing the same song. And it went on for like, what, like two and a half hours. It was like crazy. And like, honestly, like when you're like 10 or 12, like you're not a sensational singer. Like you can be very (laughs) excellent. And you know, they're working really hard, but like, I just used to like, Fall asleep. My parents would just be like, "Oh my god! Like, what are we doing here?" Well, yeah, we'd get pulled out of school. Same song. The The same same, song.
3: Yeah, you'd get pulled out of school and you'd sit there and you'd to pay like fifty dollars to do this. (laughs) Yeah, it was just it's like yeah, looking back at it, that is like the least conducive way to perform or try and uh, sing it ever. And I was just, I remember like just being so
1: nervous and I would just be, you know, you'd go, you'd wait for like two people um, in front of you and then you'd go stand at the back um, with your accompanist. And it was like very serious and you had your very serious outfit on cause you were a very serious 12 year old about singing and you went up and you <laughs> did your thing. And then the adjudicators usually just tried to say nice things. <laughs> <laughs> got a little harsher as you aged but the the feedback in my early days was always very very kind and constructive and nice
3: yeah and and you're right as you get kind of like to the 14 and under and 16 and under it kind of whittled down to like you'd see the same people every day for two weeks and it'd be like oh hey how are you doing <laughs> yeah and to be honest like we I don't even
1: know if we ever spoke at music festival but I was just like We were in all the same classes together, and Mm -hmm. and you just like that's exactly it. You just like knew your circle of like age group
3: the year above and below because every year you'd spend two weeks with them. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um. So yeah. So I did that for that crazy thing for a few years, and then uh, coming into grade twelve, I figured I should you know get a secondary education. I didn't really know what I wanted to do in my choir teacher that year. Um, She was actually the mother of my first choir teacher when I was three years old. Uh, So it's kind of a, a full circle moment there. She said, you know, I think that you might be able to go to school for music if you want help with that and I didn't really have any theory or um, I had never done a voice exam which is kind of a formal way to say you are at this level of singing and it's more kind of technical and you you know you're working on intervals and there's more test pieces like you were talking about Liv and um, so we worked together on that she would stay with me after school and at lunchtime and I worked up to my grade two theory and my grade eight exam that year and then I got ready to do auditions for different schools I auditioned for Know musical theater programs in in Ontario and classical programs here in Manitoba, and then I was kind of given a choice of musical theater or classical. And at that point, other than you know the few Italian songs that I had (laughs) drummed out during Music Fest, I hadn't really seen what classical music was, I didn't really grow up with it in the home or anything. And you know, for me, I thought I can do musical theater on the side while studying classical, and I can't really do. The other way around. Um, you know, when you're using your, when you're training your voice for classical, it's kind of like ballet, I would say, you know, you can study ballet and have tap or hip hop on the side, but you can't really study hip hop and do ballet on the side. So I ended up going to the University of Manitoba, the Digital Faculty of Music there, and it was a great experience. I was able to also work professionally, um, you know, at Rainbow Stage, some indie theaters here while I was getting my degree, which was you know, amazing because once I graduated, I had already had my equity card and I had, you know, a couple contracts at Rainbow Stage. And so I was able to leave that degree being like, great, I can either get my master's or I can start working. And so I, again, made the decision to go back to musical theater and uh, graduated in 2015. And I did a couple more musicals here and then started doing straight plays at RMTC and Prairie Theater Exchange. And then I, you know, through that, have been able to work other places and, um, you know, I've done two seasons now at the Shaw Festival, one that was a COVID season, so <laughs> it happened, just, we did two, we did a full month of rehearsals for Gypsy in person, and then March 13th happened, and then we did two months of Zoom rehearsals, and um, Because, you know, at that point, we didn't know what was going to happen. We had this full show. We were about to go on the stage. So at that point, you know, all the choreography is done. The costumes are almost done. Everyone has their lines memorized. And so I was in my tiny bedroom in Niagara-on-the-Lake-Ontario doing this full choreography for my Zoom camera, for my director (laughs) to be like, yeah, that was good. That was really good. (laughs) It was wild.
2: (laughs) Wow. So... As you said, you after um, university you were doing a lot of musical theater, but Messiah Complex this is classical. So how did how did you get involved with Messiah Complex and what was that like? Return to classical like for you?
3: Yeah, it was the Messiah Complex was such a perfect um, door back into classical music because, like you said, Katie, I have not really done classical music outside of my degree. I've done a couple workshops of arias or workshops of operas and, and things like that. But I would not consider myself an opera singer or a classical singer right now, just because, you know, I know the people I've graduated with, and they've gone on to master's programs and young artists programs. And it's just not, it's not the same level, I would have to work for a long time to get back at that level. Um, But it all started with I was in Ontario for a little bit of this year and then I came home to Winnipeg for a little bit Um, and then my partner lives out in Edmonton, Alberta and you know part of the downfall of performing is that you're very rarely in the same city as your loved ones and so something that we wanted to take advantage with with all this time off from cancelled contracts uh, was to be together. So uh, he flew out and we drove to Edmonton and on the way I I got this email and I'm driving and I I say, Adam, can you, can you open this email? And he opens it and he says, yeah, it's from this guy, Joel. He says he's with this theater company from Toronto. He said he got your name from Mel Braun. I don't know what this is. He says he, he wants you to do the Messiah. And I'm like, this is crazy because I normally, whenever I go away or I'm on contract or something like that, I try to take um, either a book of arias or, you know, an opera or something just to take with me to sing through so I can keep my chops up and I remember how to read music. And when I went to when I went to pack for Edmonton, I was like, oh, I'm going to be there for over December. It'd be nice to be able to sing through the Messiah. You know, I did it in university. Maybe I can just sight sing it through. It'd be a fun little Christmas thing to do for myself. And it was the one piece of music that I'd brought with me from Winnipeg to Edmonton. And so I was driving and, you know, it's the end of a 15 hour day of driving into Alberta. And I was just completely uh, overwhelmed with this idea that this was kind of the stars aligning. Um, Mel Braun was a professor of mine at U of M and Against the Green is a theater company that uh, dabbles mostly in opera and kind of new versions and perspectives of of opera and it was just it was um kind of a a funny coincidence for me you know I've worked in Toronto I've auditioned in Toronto but the fact that this connection was from my U of M degree was was really interesting to me so initially we got on the phone with Joel and he said you know I've I've seen, I've heard you sing. And I think this would be a great thing. We'd love you to represent Manitoba. And we totally understand if this is not, you know, not in your wheelhouse. And I told him my kind of, you know, my preconceived notions of, of, of where I'm at with my classical singing. And he's, he completely eased my fears and said, you know, this is a project that is not just for opera singers. We think you have you know we know you're talented we know you have the voice but there's also singers who are who have never sung classically so don't feel like this is going to be your you know 2019 messiah this is a 2020 messiah and the way that he described it and the way that he talked about the languages and how um you know singers from the north were were adapting this and and taking ownership of this piece that is so historically kind of cookie cutter. You can kind of imagine what it's going to look like when you go to the symphony and you see a Messiah before you even go. And so I just was so enthused by the fact that this was going to be a free offering, that it was going to be something that represented not only every province and territory in Canada, but also so many cultures and languages and people on the screen. I was just immediately drawn to it and felt like I needed to be a part of it. And it was one of the most fulfilling experiences because the trust was just so implicitly there with all the artists. Again, he had maybe heard me sing in an old YouTube video or something that I'd put up on my website, but he just immediately, him and Rinalda Arluck, who um, directed my portion, they had just such implicit trust. The whole concept of the video part was also kind of, you know, given to the artist. It was very artist driven. And yeah, it was just the most fulfilling thing of 2020 that I could have never predicted would have happened.
1: (laughs) So, you know, you mentioned that the production is sung in six different languages and in so many different locations. I'm wondering if you can speak to um, the creative process of putting the show together, specifically, you know, your your experience. Um, but if you, you know, know about others experience, I'm sure that'll be really interesting to hear about, too.
3: Yeah, it was it was really interesting. I mean when you're working on a musical or a concert or something like that you're in rehearsal with these other people you're collaborating with them you're hearing other people sing and that you know infers how you're going to sing and things like that and this was really interesting because you know I'd seen the list of people who were involved with it I'd known kind of Joel had told me a little bit of of what this person was doing and that person was doing but It was kind of blind like i didn't know my collaborators i i even louie who was my um duet partner who sang the first part of my uh duet i never met her i've never spoken to her and it just was this kind of cool trust of of collaborators that that we were all going to be on the ride of this thing but never meet each other um so the process for me we had meetings at the beginning to talk about which piece I would sing and what that piece meant to me and kind of what I picked up from that piece. And and the piece that I sang is, um, and he shall feed his flock, which is to me just such a comforting piece. Um, the Messiah is full of these huge arias that are full of ornamentation and fire. And they're, they're like, almost, I think of them as like rock anthems. They're so <laughs> exciting. You think of the Hallelujah chorus, you think of, you know, the refiner's fire or, um, you know there's just so many aspects of this piece that are so exciting and they feel like a movie score. And this piece is, uh, He Shall Feed His Flock is, is a lot more lilting. It kind of feels like a lullaby. It's very soothing. And that's something that really drew me to it. it especially at this time, you know that your soul will find peace that to me just like kind of hit home that I was like, you know what, this COVID time, this cancellation of, of, of contracts and unemployment and this kind of the place that we're in that feels really nebulous and, and kind of like we're in, you know, this, this year long hold of life that, that it's not always going to be like that. And so we kind of went with that and I wasn't in Manitoba. So I think if I was in Winnipeg, I would have, you know, had a different idea for the for the video, but because I was in Edmonton and Renalta is the um, the Director of Indigenous Arts at the Banff Center. And so I said, you know, I can come down to Banff if we want to do something there. Like for me as a prairie girl, if I can be near the mountains, I'm, <laughs> that's the best place to be. And uh, she said, that's great. So I, me and my partner went down to Banff and it was just before COVID started that big spike again. It was kind of mid November or beginning of November. And so we went down there and got a hotel and then we started at sunrise and went till sunset and myself, Renalta, and Daniel, um, our videographer, went all around Banff. We started downtown in Banff and then went to Lake Louise and then went to other locations and then ended up on the top of the mountain looking down at Banff. And um, it just was an amazing experience, you know, for me being able to see nature like that that has stood the test of time I mean I look at the top of the mountain and I have to remember that at one point that was flat on the earth and that you know because of the journey that it's taken because of this you know the the different challenges that that land has had that that is now a mountain and for me that was really symbolic of the place that we're at that these you know magnificent majestic pieces of land are still here and and are a testament to you know uh, being able to, to get through anything and resiliency.
2: So that was going to be my question about like, what does that <laughs> landscape mean to you? But I think that that's, I think that's a beautiful metaphor for the Messiah as well. Um, so for those who don't know, I mean, it's, I think it's obvious Handles Messiah is rooted in Christianity and text from the Bible. And I want to know, like, how did you kind of What was kind of going through your head when you're adapting that Christian piece of music to be more inclusive, to include all these other cultures? Was there like a a tension there, given that this piece is rooted in Christianity? Um, And how did you navigate that? How did you feel about that? What was that like?
3: Yeah, I it's really interesting because Handel created this piece, not necessarily as a sacred piece of music. So it wasn't necessarily to be part of like the liturgy or anything like that. It was made as, like you said, kind of more based on the text of this, you know, of the Bible, of the the book itself. And so his intention with it, that it is, that it would be a non, or um, a secular piece. And so to me, that was something that You know, well, I, you know, went to church when I was a young person. That's not necessarily a part of my life right now, but there's things within the piece that I think are good lessons, are, you know, touchstones for how we can live a good life. And that was something that Joel immediately in his first email said, you know, I don't think that this might not be a fit for you because of the material. And I totally understand that that's fine you know people were able to change words within the piece um rehab had uh he was despised saying it in French and changed it to she was despised and that was about her and her mother as um as Muslim people in Montreal and that to me you know hearing about that take on it I was a much more at ease knowing that this was really a new take on the Messiah, that it wasn't meant to be, you know, sung uh, at your church on Sunday morning, that this was a piece for the masses. And I think that the Messiah is, you know, a lot of people go to the symphony once a year for the Messiah, and it's less about, I think, the... the the religious connotations and more about this ritual of going with your family and singing along, you know, there's Messiahs that happen in the pub and everyone drinks and you sing along to the hallelujah chorus. And to me, that is, that's more what I connect the piece with is that kind of, you know, that it's like the nutcracker for the symphony (laughs) and uh, that it's this, this beautiful piece of music that I'm really glad can be, um, can be changed in this way that makes it relevant and effective in 2020. No,
1: absolutely and I think um you know you you touched on it that a, a couple of people in this video and for uh, other reasons different people have you know complicated history um with Christianity especially you know with residential schools and and things like that and 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 I saw some interviews um where people spoke about that about you know how how they are reclaiming um, this, this text and this idea. And of course, um, you know, we had, um, a Muslim act actress in the, in the production who, you know, found, found a way to make it, make it relevant to her and meaningful to her, which I think is, is fantastic. Um, so this production has of course been called the Canadian Messiah. So I'm curious to think, uh, to, to get your opinion, you know, do you think that this production is, is uniquely Canadian
3: and what, and why? <laughs> Yeah, I, to me, I, I 100% think it is. I mean, the final piece we have, it's in an, a, a hockey rink with Tim Hortons <laughs> comes on display. Uh, so that is, we have the little stereotype in at the end, but for me, the fact that you can sit in your living room and you're able to see, you know, uh, you're able to see the Northwest Territories and Yukon and Newfoundland and all of these places, you're able to literally travel through every province and every territory. To me, that that is Canadian. I think also the fact that we are able to see all of this representation um, and hear these languages that is inherently Canadian and what's made me so proud of this piece and to be a small part of it has been seeing the international reception of it of seeing people from the states you know reading the comments of what they left on the YouTube uh, video and seeing you know what the New York Times has said to me if this is the if this is the we're we're putting forward, that we're starting our walk towards, you know, reconciliation and representation within Canada, and that's how the world is perceiving us, then we're doing a good job. I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of companies that are using this moment, um, and and the fight for anti-racism and equity, and it feels a little performative. You can feel it when you're like, I, this just doesn't have the heart behind it. And with Against the grain and Joel and Renalta from the very get-go, it never felt like tokenism or like they were using this moment to benefit themselves. It really felt like this is what we want to go forward with. At, that, at this point, they were taking a risk, you know. They started filming this. They started thinking of this around in June or July when when COVID was starting, well, obviously still happening. They do a messiah every year and they just knew this year they can't do one in person. So how are we gonna how are we gonna deal with this? And, you know, everyone at that point, you'd done a bajillion online theater cabarets and everyone's zoomed out and no one wants to watch even if it's free no one wants to watch anything you know um people are just re-watching The Office 14 times and <laughs> and so you know speaking to Joel he he you know talks about the fact that this he didn't know if it would be well received he didn't know if it would you know have the 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 pull for people to watch it and the fact that it you know, from the get go, I think we had three thousand people watching the opening night, which was—it felt like an opening night. Being able to see the piece, also because of the fact that live you—you touched on before, I never seen any other piece. I hadn't even seen my piece. You know, I was there when we filmed it, but I'd never seen it put together with the music. I'd never seen Spencer's piece. I'd never seen Jonathan's piece. I'd hadn't heard them sing. So to be able to sit there with my little glass of Prosecco and watch the whole thing, and then also see the YouTube comments and seeing everyone, you know, applauding and saying, wow, that looks great. Oh, this is so beautiful. You know, it was, that was the closest to theater that I felt since the shutdown has happened. And, um, and to me, I think that spirit has, has kind of propelled the piece to the reception that it's given because at the heart, at the soul of it, that it is trying to do something that's really good. And I think that that
2: was well received by the audiences. I think it's really interesting that this is happening in opera too, because I think opera is something that we, we kind of think of as being a little bit more inaccessible um, both in like hashtags, like opera is racist, but also just in, you know, in a, like in a monetary sense, like people who can actually afford to go to the opera, like it's not accessible to, historically hasn't been accessible to a lot of people. Um, I think it's really meaningful that you were able to put something together that all, like all Canadians can see could be internationally viewed. I think that's really remarkable. Um, Is that like, is that something that you're interested in making opera and classical music more accessible in every sense?
3: Oh, totally. I mean, Inherently, it is a colonial art form, right? It is literally taken from Europe and displaced here. You know, unlike something like musical theater that has roots in America and kind of was created in North America here, opera is a complete transplant from uh, Europe. And so it is... For me, there's huge barriers. I mean, language is a huge one. Um, even the spaces that opera is held in—you know—you can see musical theater in in a small in a small theater in Osborne or or at MTC or at Rainbow Stage. There's different levels of accessibility for for people to feel like they have a space and they have ownership enough to even accept, you know, a free or discounted ticket. Um, But something like the opera, I mean, when I think of going to the opera, I think I'm going to need a fancy dress, you know, I'm going to be around all these very, you know, affluent people. That's going to, that's even for me as an artist who might be on that stage, I'm like, there's no way (laughs) I'm going to be there in that audience. Um, So I think there's a lot of barriers. And I think being able to offer something like this as, and as a a gateway or a first experience for communities all across Canada is huge, is huge, huge, huge. First of all, the representation, right? In the opera canon, there's literally zero indigenous representation. And if there is, it is grossly stereotypical and tropish. But the fact that this was artists being themselves and taking on something and infusing it with their own artistry, Gave an ownership to themselves, and and you know that doesn't mean that necessarily everyone within the community agrees with it or thinks that it is as great as I think it is. Um, so you know we have to remember that 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 mm-hmm. it's what's what's good for that person might not be good for that person, but yeah, I think that you're ha- hitting on something that is a huge problem, especially with the opera world and 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 floating between opera and theater. That is something that you know communities aren't going to walk into spaces that they don't feel. A value in you know I'm not going to I'm not going to walk into OM if I go well I'd rather go see a rock concert or I'd rather save my money and go to a show at MTYP where I can bring my kids and and I know you know it's interactive or, or something like that you know so I think it is a huge a huge hurdle that the opera world is going to have to kind of figure out how to maneuver and I think that starts with community outreach and community justice, being able to put on shows with representation, going into those communities saying, hey, I think that you need to see this and you know, we're gonna pay for you to come and we're gonna have an, uh, you know uh, a talk with the artists after, or we're gonna send an artist beforehand, like that it's not enough to just say, well, there's a discount there if you want. It really has to be community engagement with those communities that you want to be able to have there because if they don't see a value even going, they're not going to go. You know, I think of something um, that happened a few years ago at RMTC. It was um, Yellow Rabbit's production of Making Treaty 7, and it was this piece that was all Indigenous made. Um, It was just basically vignettes about the um, impact of Treaty 7, both past, um, current, and kind of future, and it was this collective of artists, um, Indigenous and white, and the way that they presented it was kind of like a game show making this treaty, so the two hosts were, you know, kind of sleazy car salesmen, and there was this one piece I remember that stuck with me so to this day and it is this piece of this woman speaking about the treaty um this indigenous woman speaking about the treaty to her baby saying this is going to be better for us you know we're being promised these things this you know they're here to help they're here to help and she takes the baby and it transforms into kind of a blanket and she is then a homeless woman on the streets of edmonton and it just was something that was so moving and i remember it was a free offering to the community and it was a fully indigenous audience, fully indigenous. Everyone, it was filled up to the roof. People stayed after for hours, just talking in the lobby. And I go, I don't think, you know, I've never seen a theater have this kind of audience before. And so it is so true that when the value, when they see the value, when that community sees the value of that piece or that piece of theater or that, you know, concert, they're going to come and they're going to come, In droves because they see that value. But it's when, you know, we're putting on LabOM and saying, well, there's free tickets if you want to come. The value's not there. So how do we engage with that community in a way that says we value you and we want you to come and see? And so we're going to engage with you on a way that, you know, actually serves you and not just us by saying, we have free seats for you to come. (laughs) I think it's such a good point. And it's it's I think
1: it's really hitting the nail on the head of so many issues, um, in the arts and, and just in the world too, that people aren't willing to, you know, adapt and make changes for, uh, for to be accessible to other people. And so I'm curious, you know, how you think that the pandemic has helped like tr- force people <laughs> to be think outside of the box and be innovative. And, um, yeah, I mean, obviously that's, that's been the case with Messiah complex, but uh, you know, can you talk about how the pandemics affected the arts at large?
3: yeah i mean the way that we know how to do things is of yesteryear by now you know like especially you know musical theater and things like that we rely on live performances a one transaction audience right they buy a ticket one time maybe they'll come and see it twice maybe three times who knows but you are basing that on a one experience thing um and that, I think, has completely shifted. And you've seen some theaters who've been able to, you know, we call it pivoting, which is becoming one of those unprecedented words that you're just like, if I hear that one more time, but unprecedented seeing,
2: times, yes, yeah. exactly.
3: um, but seeing that pivot that some theaters have gone okay okay I see that we're not going to be able to put on this production how can we do something that's online that's engaging that's different that's accessible that people you know will either pay for or there'll be a donation afterwards how can we do that that is going to be uh fulfilling not only for the artists because you know there's only so much zoom theater that can happen in the world (laughs) um so that's been really cool to see across Canada the the um theaters that have really been able to say like, okay, we have to rethink how we're gonna do this. You know, Tarragon Theater in Toronto has done some radio plays. They're doing this new Orestes piece that's on till the 14th of February. That's really interactive and online and really cool. And something for me that has been so exciting has been the accessibility that has been people can watch this online you know there's shows that are happening live that you have to tune in at a certain time and there's other shows that say here's a link you have it for 12 hours watch it whenever you like which I think is a beautiful offering that I can you know find a time in my home and sit and watch it and pause if I need to and come back to it if I need to. You know, having that accessibility is not something that's necessarily viable in the live theater, but being able to have captioning or an ASL interpreter, there's so many aspects of the accessibility, um, uh, you know, that's available online that I think that we should be able to look into in the future. I think a lot of people won't necessarily be itching to get back into a seat filled you know with a thousand people around them that I think that moving forward we might need to do kind of a, a dual model of you know of being able to offer a filmed version and there's also a live experience you know you can do whichever one you want but I think being able to you know as a as a millennial I, I feel that we need to be able to bring Social media and 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 the internet into the arts a little bit more um, than it already is. You know, you go to a show and you you can't be on your cell phone and and I agree with that um, 100%. But I think that there is an aspect that we haven't really tapped into yet within the theater world of that interactivity with with the audience and that accessibility.
1: And I hope selfishly that we get more art like this that takes classic pieces and makes them new again and meaningful to you know all so many different types of Canadians. And I think, you know, at Stratford, you see them doing a lot of that with Shakespeare and things like that. Um, And so I do hope that this kind of becomes a template for the future of how we're, how we're thinking about these classical pieces as well. And, and, and how we're addressing, you know, tensions in our own country. I think that that's there's a, there's a lot that we can glean from this production and that we should celebrate about this production beyond, you know, beautiful singing, you know? And so, yeah. So I'm, I'm curious on, on your thoughts of, of how this production in particular might shape the future of the arts in Canada.
2: Oh, gosh. I know it's a big
1: question. <laughs> I know it's a big question.
2: No pressure.
3: <laughs> I mean, I think of the the big kind of markers for me of this production that have been different from other pieces I've been in, or the way that I'm, you know, we're used to working within theater and musical theater and opera for me is the how artist driven it was. Um, that we were given full trust, full kind of you know, a license to interpret this how we wanted and the essence, I think why it's so successful is that you are seeing each artist as they want to be portrayed as they, you know, in their fullest self that they're, you you can't not see them for who they are. And that to me is when we are all able to succeed is when you're able to enter a space and to be all that you are and to bring everything and stand there in, you know, your mucklucks or your high heels or your skates or whatever that may be and own that. And to me, that is something that um, I think we can move forward with in, in the art world. And that's been talked a lot a, a lot about, you know, equity and rehearsal spaces and casting and things like that, that we are able to move forward with being able to see people as their full selves, their full humanity, um, even when they're playing a part, you know, it, it's talked a lot about, you know, colorblind casting and what that means. And, and to me, that is colorblind casting means that everyone's, playing a white character right that we're we're all just kind of diluting everyone down to this when you're when you're when you're talking about who that that person is that that actor is you're talking about what it means when that body says those lines and that means different things depending on you know their their skin tone their culture their their language like at you know all of those things matter and i think that was the big success with messiah complex was that we were seen and able to stretch our full arms of humanity out and that those were that was seen through the um, through the video. So that to me was a big thing being artist driven and being able to stand there in our full humanity and being celebrated for that was a big thing. Um, and also collaboration, you know in theater, as in most places within our society we work in a very kind of top-down hierarchy of you know director and then you have these people you have the leads and then you have the ensemble and you have the understudies and it's this kind of pyramid of of power no matter what and this piece was I mean maybe it was the fact that we weren't in a rehearsal hall that all of these things kind of happened on zoom and it was very independent. Like I went to the recording studio by myself and it was this with the sound engineer that they had hired. And, and, and and I, I, you know, I felt very in, in control of that experience. Um, but it felt so collaborative across the board that it wasn't really, uh, okay, I'm driving the ship and, and you've got to buckle up behind me, that it really felt like all hands were on that wheel. And that's something that I hope we can move forward with, maybe even in a more, um, you know, translucent state that we can, you know, I'd love to see rehearsal halls where there are two directors or to read a play that's written by four people or even theaters. You know, the fact that we have one artistic director is a norm all across North America, but what if we had a collection of artistic directors and that way a season is curated by five or six people? I think that, you know, that would be a model that we would be able to hear a lot more voices and see a lot more stories within that context. So I think those are the two main things, being able to be representative of your humanity and standing in that, and then the collaboration. I think those are two things that if we're, you know, if there's anything that we can steal from Messiah Complex to move forward with, those are the two things.
1: You know what, and I think it's such a good point because the conversation that we love to be ha- ha- that we love to have on this podcast is all about you know what it means to be Canadian and how do we how do we define you know what is Canadian content to um, to some extent and and we often grapple with that you know is it more important to have um, Canadians behind the scenes is it more important to have Canadians up front um, and I think that your synthesis and your answer really. Um, Is an important reminder that it's it's a team, you know, and it's about collaborating and it's about using everyone's experience. and I think there's the points that you point out are just are are great to keep in mind because I think that they are so important. And those two things, you know, collaboration and um, and letting people who wouldn't normally be in positions of power take power and take control of the the story and and the process, I think, is really important. So um, yeah, I think those are the two really excellent points that I'm like, gonna keep thinking about beyond this conversation.
2: That's great. I'm still interested in like the feedback that you've received for this production. Um, I did notice that you've been written up in a few right-wing articles that I won't name because they don't need attention, which I think is the mark of any great piece piece of art um pissing pissing off the conservatives however um i'm interested in like what kind of conversations were are you hoping that messiah complex starts has started um if at all
3: yeah i mean that that's great i will have to google google the (laughs) (laughs) wing newspapers after this um you know i i think it comes back to again representation and it being done authentically um And without kind of pandering or tokenism or, uh, or doing it because it's, you know, in season right now. I think that that is something that sticks with me that if you watch this piece, it is so authentic in its representation in the way that the languages are treated in the way that we have, you know, uh, just a myriad of experiences and cultures and languages and provinces and territories um, in the mix. And and that's something that I think really shows that it's done in a way that doesn't feel like, you know, we gotta check all these boxes. That's for me as a performer, when I walk into a space and I go, oh, I'm checking a box. I, I know it right now, I'm checking a box. And that's always kind of an icky feeling because you go, am I, did I get this job because I can sing really well or you know because I'm perfect for this part or did I get this job because at the end of the day you're getting funding from the government of Canada and you have to write a report of how many boxes you've checked (laughs) you know what I mean and so Mm. this is I never once felt that um, other than the fact that I was checking the box of Manitoba itself
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Well, this has been so much fun. I'm um, talking to you. You are obviously an incredible talent, but you're also incredibly smart. And that's what we learned in this conversation. Please plug yourself, you know, what's next for you? Where can people find you? Um, you know, how can people follow along on your journey?
3: Yeah. Um, so, I mean, what's next, who knows other than what's happening <laughs> the next hour, but, um, I'm slated to be back at the Shaw Festival this season. Um, I'll be playing Louise in Gypsy. Um, so okay, so
1: you're doing Gypsy. It's finally yes. happening. Your dance <laughs> Zoom lessons are paying off.
3: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You'll be able to see the Zoom musical on, on stage. Um, so that'll, you know, hopefully happen sometime this year. And other than that, um, you can find me on Instagram at julie L-U-M-S. And I have a website if you want to see, you know, what I'm up to. It's julielumsden.com. Uh, But thank you so much for having me today. It's been such a pleasure being able to talk with you, too.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices.